Professor O'Leary has provided us with an impressive, historically informed political science overview of the Free State, Northern Ireland, and the UK since partition. My focus is a narrower one that addresses an issue that has been largely absent from the decade of centenary's treatment of the North, that of class and unionist identity. My focus will be on two groups, the shipyard owners and shipyard workers of Belfast. This is also in part the history of my father's family who arrived in East Belfast from Scotland in the last decade of the 19th century. Their history, in particular, that involving employment in Belfast's premier industry, can be used as a concrete example of the radical and sectarian tendencies within a key sector of the Protestant working class. At times, these tendencies cohabited in the same individual, as Connell Parr has recently demonstrated in his work on the shipyard playwright and master of an orange lodge, Thomas Corndorf. From the 1880s, the industrial and political bloc between the shipyard owners and their largely Protestant labour force was, in the words of Arthur Balfour, to the War Cabinet in 1918, the heart of the Ulster movement. Belfast's engineering and shipbuilding industries were orientated outwards to an Irish Sea Triangle, of which the other points were Glasgow and Liverpool, and beyond that to the Empire. In the case of the shipyards, a broader imperialism of free trade also linked them to markets in the United States and Latin America. The city's most dynamic period of economic and demographic expansion would not have happened without these links. The founders of Holland and Wolf and Workmen and Clark shipyards were either migrants from the north of England and Scotland or their second generation descendants. A unionism without these productive forces would have found it much harder to resist home rule. By 1914, Harlan and Wolfe employed nearly 25,000 when its works in Liverpool and Southampton are included. In Belfast, along with Workman Clark, the shipyards employed over 20,000 workers. The industrial might of Belfast in British and international terms is well summed up by the economic historian David Edgerton. Belfast could claim Harland and Wolfe, the largest shipyard in the world. Belfast Harbour built the largest dry dock in the world. It had in the Sirocco Works, the world's largest tea drying machinery maker, and in the Belfast Rope Works, the largest maker of rope in the world. Shipyard workers set their own records. The Guinness World Record in riveting was set in by a workman Clark Riveter in 1918. Much of, the industry, of this industry was located in the east of the city, across the lagoon from the city centre and the older, larger, largely textile-based industrial districts of the Shankle and the Falls. The giant Queen's Island works of Holland and Wolfe, the Rope Works and the Soroka Works were all in the Ballymacarrett district whose main artery was the lower Newtonards Road. The expanding workforces were housed in row after row of new red brick terraces in east and southeast Belfast, many of which were built in the last two decades of the 19th century. It was in this part of Belfast that my father was born in 1917, 
to parents living in D Street, which runs north from the Lord Newtonard Road towards the Queen's Island. The family, like many other Scottish Presbyterian migrants, arrived in Belfast from the shipbuilding centres of the Clyde in the 1890s. That decade had seen the population of the city expand from almost 260,000 to just under 350,000, the largest increase in its history. Migrants from other shipbuilding centres brought not only their trades, but also their politics. In 1893, some of the workers expelled from Harlan Wolf were identified as Scottish home rulers. My great-grandfather William had been a riveter on the Clyde. According to the 1901 census, the family was living in 10 Melrose Avenue, a recently constructed terrace of six houses off the Beersbridge Road, a few hundred yards from the roadworks. William was now a riveter in Holland and Wolfe, while his son, Henry, and a daughter, Eliza, were employed in the roadworks. By 1912, both William and Henry were working in Holland and Wolfe. Henry was now also a riveter, following the common path of many skilled shipyard workers throughout the UK, where apprenticeships jealously guarded by the craft unions were obtained through the intervention of a father or other relative. Given the religious and ethnic divisions in Belfast, this meant Protestant domination of the shipyard crafts. Henry married and moved to Hollycroft Avenue, the next street up the Beardsbridge Road. A few streets further was Hindford Street, where in 1945, at number 125, George Ivan Morrison, the great Van Morrison, was born, the son of an electrician in Holland and Wolfe. In 1912, William and Henry walked down the Beersbridge Road to the Bloomfield Avenue Presbyterian Church to sign the Ulster Covenant. Henry was in the Orange Order, which by 1914 had over 13,000 members in Belfast, an increase of almost a, thir a third since the introduction of the Third Home Rule Bill. The Orange Order never constituted a solid block within unionism, representing as it did a wide range of views and social groups. It was as divided by class as was the broader unionist movement. D Street had a hall of the independent Orange Order, a radical working class schism from the main order led by a shipyard worker, Thomas Sloan. Sloan's successful bid to become MP for South Belfast in 1902 had been financed by William Perry, the managing director of Horn and Wolf, and at that time a Home Rule supporter. Perry's family, like most of the Presbyterian business class in Belfast, had been liberal in politics and anti-Orange down, down to the 1880s, when Gladstone's support for Home Rule had pushed the majority into a unionist alliance with her former conservative opponents. Perry had maintained the faith, in part because his support for Catholic and Labour representation on Belfast Corporation when he was Lord Mayor had robbed him of a unionist nomination for South Belfast. He soon afterwards declared his support for Home Rule. Orangeism was certainly a barrier to broader class unity across the religious divide but not to class consciousness within the shipyards. In 1920, some of the trade union militants expelled were orange men. 
portrayals of the order as embodying a colonially rooted ethos of Protestant superiority over Catholics get only part of the truth of working class Orangism. FSL Alliance's description of the order still rings true. It appealed to religious primitivism, but it also provided color, poetry, and its own kind of magic for ordinary drab lives. A photograph taken in a piece of, on a piece of open ground in D Street in 1912 shows three rows of men seated and standing wearing orange and black sashes and collarettes with at each, with at each side members of the East Bell, Belfast UVF in uniform and carrying rifles. The men are standing in front of Lundy's pole, a telegraph pole converted into a symbolic display of loyalist determination to resist home rule and cast out traitors. In February 1912, Perry had organized a pro-home rule meeting in Celtic Park in Belfast, addressed by Winston Churchill and John Redmond. Four days later, he was pelted with flour, rotten eggs, and herring when getting the steamer to Scotland in Larne. By 1920, Perry had reverted to unionism. De Valera and Collins were perceived as such a direct threat to the future of the shipyards that he was making contingency plans to transfer the business to the Clyde. At the north end of D Street, before the bridge which took workers into the shipyard, was the, o was the Oval, the ground of Glentoran Football Club. The land on which the Oval was built, along with a large part of Ballymacarrot between the Queen's Island and the Lower Newtonards Road, was owned by the property developer, factory owner, and unionist politician, Sir Daniel Dixon. Dixon was a key mover in the floating of Glentoran as a public company in 1900, along with Gustav Wolfe and Perry. In 1912, the Oval was the venue for an anti-home rule rally, where the crowd created a human union jack. Glentoran was the sporting embodiment of a unionist class alliance. The player register for 1911-1912 lists the trades of the players, fitters, caulkers, shipwrights, platers, painters, and shipyard laborers. Craftsmen were the shipyard elite and constituted around two-thirds of the workforce. Tasked with riveting together the iron and steel plates of a ship's hull, the riveters were amongst the highest paid crafts. These were Lenin's labor aristocracy, the skilled workers who formed the bedrock of craft unionism and labor politics. However, although their wages were higher, the work was insecure due to the very severe business cycle of the industry. Unemployment was common, even in periods of prosperity. Working on the hulls of ships in all weathers was dangerous and deaths and injuries from falls or objects falling on workers were common. The constant noise of hammering resulted in many riveters being deaf by the end of their 30s. Inhalation of fumes from the heating of rivets could lead to lung disease. It killed my grandfather at the age of 50. Many of those who attended the 1912 Unionist rally were by January 1919 involved in the shipbuilding and engineering workers' strike for reduction of working hours from 54 to 44, 
which shut down the city for three weeks. Emmett O'Connor has labelled the two years from the summer of 1918 to the summer of 1920 as Belfast's two red years, pointing to the mass strike and the election of 13 Labour councillors to the corporation in January 1920. The shipyard expulsions of July 1920 have captured the attention of historians. However, the broader social and economic history of Ballymacarrat, its industrial muscle and trade union history have hardly featured in analysis of this period and the subsequent history of the Northern Ireland state. The shipyards contained a dark tradition manifest since the 1860s of vicarious retribution against Catholic workers for the political and violent acts of Irish nationalists in other parts of the island. But they also contained those who in, 1890, in the 1893 disturbances over the second Home Rule Bill tried to protect their Catholic workmates from the mob. The main craft unions condemned the violence and intimidation in 1893 and 1912. And it was to the shipyard workers of his parish that the Reverend John Redmond of St. Patrick's on the Lower Newtonards Road turned in July 1920 when he organized bands of unarmed volunteers to protect the premises of local Catholics and prevent rioting and looting. However, there is little doubt that at a time of on, uh, intense uncertainty about the political future of the North, many shipyard workers were indif indifferent to the fate of those who had been expelled, and others feared the consequences of opposing them all. But the nature of the national question was not the sole issue at play. Employers and the unionist leadership shared an acute class anxiety. The Belfast newsletter blamed the 1919 strike on Bolshevik agitators, and Carson was president of the British Empire Union, established by ultras in the Conservative Party to expose Bolshevism and the dangers connected with nationalism. In Belfast, a key role in this organization was played by the shipyard militants of the Ulster Unionist Labour Association, who identified socialism and industrial militancy with Sinn Féin. The UULA did its work well. Over 1,850 of the expelled were Protestants, many of them trade union and labour activists. Along with the high rates of unemployment from the mid-1920s to the end of the 1930s, the spectre of shipyard radicalism, which had so troubled unionist leaders in 1919, was banished. The Second World War resulted in an upsurge of militancy in the shipyards, engineering factories, and aircraft factories, which between them employed around 40,000 workers in 1944. It was the heavily unionized shipyard and engineering workers who made Northern Ireland the most strike-prone region of the UK during the Second World War. It was East Belfast workers, many of them from the shipyard, who gave Billy McCulloch, General Secretary of the Communist Party of Northern Ireland, almost 6,000 votes in the 1945 Stormont election. Without the fear of losing this class's support, the unionist government may well have indulged its most reactionary sectors and used devolution to keep out the welfare state when it was introduced in the rest of the United Kingdom after 1945. 
My grandfather was part of the respectable working class with no time for rioters, but equally no sympathy for red flaggers. He had joined the Congregationalists, a small ultra-democratic sect that expected regular church and Sunday school attendance and an ordered, an ordered life distinct from the chaos and disorder which was thought to characterize the rougher elements of the working class. With six children, the eldest of them nine at the time of partition, his work and the income it brought was the center of his existence. The summer violence in 1920 was uncomfortably close to his family. In two incidents at or near D, D Street, five young Protestants were shot dead by the military. However, with some of the best wages for skilled workers in the UK and relatively full order books down to 1925, Harland and Wolfe provided the means by which he was able to exit East Belfast and take his family to the safely unionist town of Bangor. His unionism and British national identity, like that of many other working class Protestants, was rooted in taken for granted aspects of everyday life, at the core of which was their work and the nexus of economic and political relations with Britain and the empire that made it possible. These included trade unions and for a minority, labor and socialist politics. The material basis for this working class unionist identity was still remarkably strong in the 1960s. The, the iconic gantries, Samson and Goliath, were built in 1969 and 1973. It was also manifest in the shop stewards movement, which had developed during the Second World War. In August 1969, when violence broke out in Belfast, it was, shop, it was the shop stewards who called a mass meeting of the shipyard workforce to successfully oppose attempts by loyalist militants to repeat the expulsions of the 1920s. In the words of Sandy Scott, the chief shop steward in the yard, the shipyard men are determined to maintain the peace and set an example to the province. Thus, for all the sectarianism that existed within the shipyards, without the class consciousness that was also rooted there, the Northern Ireland state would have been much more like the carnival re of reaction that Connolly predicted. Thank you.